UK welfare state was revolutionary. It lifted thousands out of poverty, provided decent homes, good education and security. But it is out of kilter now. In this episode of Between the Lines, author Hilary Cotton talks about her book, Radical Help, how we can remake the relationships between us and revolutionise the welfare state. She discusses her participatory approach and presents a new design that challenges us to look at how modern solutions might start with people and communities fostering their capabilities. Hilary studied at IDS. Her career began with an international focus, working on programmes in Africa and Latin America. Many of her ideas and approaches stemmed from this international work. Speaking to Hilary is IDS Research Associate Richard Longhurst. So Hilary, I think I must dive straight in with the most obvious question, and which is why are you here talking in an International Development Institute on UK domestic issues? Well, I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I mean, Radical Help is really a book about how to make a 21st century welfare state, and it focuses on Britain. But the ideas within it I developed through my international work, particularly the kind of different practice I have and the participative practice was something I grew in Africa and Latin America. But I also think more fundamentally what Britain needs right now is a concept of development which goes beyond services that meet outputs and outcomes in a very sort of transactional way. And most of that thinking comes from development studies and so those roots are very important to me and that's why it's great to be here. Well, that's a very logical and interesting approach. And I'm interested in the, um, well, the challenges is the word people use about professional silos and whether people uh, were the opposition you may have faced in crossing these contexts in this way. Well, it is interesting. When I came to Britain, I mean, I did a PhD for various reasons. I wanted to kind of extend my thinking, but I also wanted to live here and see if I could start to work here. And I wanted to work in local government. I thought that would be the level at which I could do the kind of community-based building that I do. And I couldn't find work because nobody then, um, this was sort of the late 90s, could make a connection between all the work I'd done in the developing world and here in the UK, which I think would not be the case today. Now, you know, the forces of globalisation mean we can see different practice. But that's what sort of drove me down the social entrepreneurial route. I realised that I basically had to start something myself, which I did. I kind of had been working in Zambia and Mozambique on water systems. We had a government in the UK that was going to kind of renew outdated infrastructure in exactly the same way as I had fought against at the World Bank. And so I kind of sent a pamphlet to every school in Britain and said, if you want to think differently about this, can you join me? And that was really the beginning of my UK work. So in terms of getting into work, uh, as it were, paid work, we all have to use (laughs) paid work. Did you find it was necessary to set up your own establishments, as in fact you've done? That yes, well, so, that's, so that's what I did, mm-hmm. basically, is I used that to kind of then raise money. And the first enterprise I built was about rethinking school buildings in this century, th- asking what would a 21st century curriculum look like if we're going to invest all this money in British schools? Why are we going to kind of do up 1950 schools? Why aren't we going to use that money to rethink links between a modern curriculum? And so I raised the money from foundations um, to do that work and... Uh, did one school which um, became a kind of award-winning school and then kind of this process was replicated in many more schools across Britain. Mm -hmm. So uh, I just wanted to ask you about, uh, you know there is the Sustainable Development Goal Framework, which is universal. Yes. And um, there's a growing talk about what is the UK doing about the SDGs. And um, I just wanted to ask you again, are you finding, when you talk about the SDGs, 
that uh, there is some uh, feeling that development issues are being taken on board in the domestic sphere? Well, I mean, I think it's a good question because, I mean, I think Britain has met one SDG. We've got good water and sanitation. I would say, I don't know what people say, but I would say we haven't met any of the rest of them. But um, actually, I think I'm only asked to talk about SDGs in the international context. So I have done some talking around this, but never before in Britain. And I think that there isn't, yes, that we need to kind of raise the issues and raise the game in Britain. This isn't a kind of matter of debate. And I certainly think at a kind of household level, if you went around and asked people what what do you think about the SDGs? Nobody would know what you're talking about. Well, I can and that's a problem. <laughs> agree with you there. I'm finding that right. uh, very much in my own experience. So uh, just to come on to your book, which I enjoyed reading very much, you place a lot of, well, not a lot of, uh, the central emphasis is on relationships. Yes. And the, the thing that occurs to me is that we see, frankly, you know, as you've pointed out, a lot of our instruments of the welfare state don't really take that into account. So how do you feel about the design of programmes that from the start take relationships into account? You, it requires a lot of start-up time, it requires a lot of listening and a lot of design when people really want to see you just get up and get going and get the money out of the door. Yes. So, I mean, I tell a history, a very short history of the welfare state in the book. And I think what's really interesting is that relationships were always designed out of British institutions, that Beveridge and the kind of founders of these post-war institutions felt that they couldn't trust what they called the common man, you know, who had all these emotions and couldn't be trusted. So you needed very strong bureaucratic rules and apparatus in order to make change. And I think what I make an argument for is that although one could argue that was fine for its time, it's definitely not fine now because the nature of our problems has changed. So if you think about challenges of ageing or climate change or chronic conditions all the big challenges across the world, and this is definitely a British issue and an issue in Africa, Latin America and so on, these are uh, challenges that can only be solved with deep participation and horizontal bonds between people. But I really like the fact that you asked me, does this not take a lot of start-up time? Because it does. And I use a design process that, you know, the first nine months are around kind of opening up what the question should be, fostering those relationships. Now, what I would argue, and I think what the kind of metrics around my work show, is that if you invest that time in the beginning, later on you, you speed up and you have kind of fast and sustainable social change. But, of course, the problem is in a current kind of era of log frames and everything else, how do you persuade people to fund those open processes at the beginning? And that's definitely a challenge and actually becoming more of a challenge. Yes, I mean, funders want to see results and they want to see them quickly. Well, more than that, they actually want you to tell them right at the beginning Mm. what you're going to find. And in my work, what I say is, I take an issue like ageing and I say, would you like to put in money? Um, I think I run probably the biggest social innovation projects in Britain because I'm designing to kind of make system change, so I need to kind of already work at a certain scale. And I say, you know, everybody's had a go at this problem. Nobody knows the answer, so put some money in. We'll start this open participatory process, and we do not know what's going to happen. So those are kind of brave and committed funders because that's not the usual way, unfortunately, of doing work. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you'll find uh, aspects of that, certainly in some of the development work that's being done here. But as as a very broad judgment, do you feel that the development community is, as it were, further ahead on this participatory work 
than the UK domestic community? That's a very broad question. Well, I, I mean, definitely I learned all my methods here, here at IDS. I mean, I talk about Robert Chambers in the book. I mean, you know, the, the kind of what I learned from Robert here at IDS was completely sort of life-changing for me and changed the way that I work. I then had to kind of grow and change those methods in a UK context, which I also talk about, which is where kind of design comes in. I think that when I came to work here um, in the sort of late 90s, what had been happening in the so-called developing world was far ahead of anything that had happened in the UK. I'm not sure now. I don't know the developing world well enough, but people tell me that it's quite hard. You can do it in small pockets, but to really do kind of deep and open participative work is becoming harder, but probably everywhere, you know, because of certain kind of sort of, I'd say, neoliberal frameworks that we're trying to work within. I'm sure the practice is still kind of more, more uh, radical in the developing world. Because as you mentioned in your book, Robert has this phrase, handing over the stick. Yes. And what's that is supposed to signify is handing over power. Yes. In other words, uh, those who are previously in charge of other people say, now look, you're in charge. Yes. And we'll follow what you do. Yes. So again, everything you've been talking about is very power laden you know, either implicitly or explicitly. Yes. And so, I mean, a good example, I mean, as you say, radical help, I go cradle to grave to show what a 21st century welfare state would look like. And I start um, living on estates in Swindon alongside families that have got all kinds of problems of debt, poverty, uh, abuse. And um, and I tell the story of one mother called Ella who has got 73 different uh, social health workers and so on around her. 73 different people involved in the life of her and her family and literally we ask all those people to hand the stick back to Ella and we say look you've had decades to try and resolve this nothing is happening would you all stand back and we'll ask Ella we'll offer support and she can figure her own way out of this crisis and that's exactly what happens and then we kind of replicate that work with many more families and I think that's that's exactly what we're trying to do hand over the stick. Yes, I mean, when I read that, I thought, this is totally mad. You know, why is no one in the system saying, look, maybe there could be 10 people, but not 73? Yes. So were there, when, when you were introducing your very uh, radical approaches, were there other people saying, well, we know that there's a problem, but we have important things to suggest, but a bit less radical. So are there people in the system who are not quite going the full hog that you're yes, going, yes. but nevertheless are trying to improve things a bit? And can you work with them? Yes, definitely there are. But I mean, I think your question is so important because, first of all, why do people not see it? And that goes back to the question you asked me at the beginning is professionals working in silos. They're, I mean, they are all sitting, visiting Ella's house. They're not always there at the same time. And only Ella, sitting there on her sofa, has the experience of all these people and so do I when I'm there has this experience otherwise you know the policeman's there at one time and the social worker's there at another and so there's not until we kind of made an actual physical plot of this there wasn't a kind of obvious recognition this was happening however the leaders of the authority where she lived could see the money involved and they said there's got to be another way but I think what's really important is that with kind of market frameworks that have taken over so much work all around the world there's been this real emphasis on risk and so if you kind of manage people's lives and nothing really awful happens, nothing will happen to you as a leader. But if you take a risk to say, let's all stand back and think about it in a different way and something does happen, then, of course, the wrath of the media and politicians will rain down on you. So in the British system, it's very, very brave to try and change it. Um, and so there are people trying to change it already in the system. And those are the allies, those people that are trying to kind of make work. And can we amplify what's already good that's happening in institutions is also a big part of what I do. Yes, when I read your book, I realised you were caught between many forces, the privatisation forces, 
but also the we cannot dismantle the beverage yes. concept of the welfare state. So you're, you've really been caught in a lot of... Uh, crossfire in that regard. Yes, and I can feel it on social media now. And I think that because I think one of the things that's happened is that because the welfare state is under fire and there have been such massive deep cuts that those perhaps on the left who tend to defend the welfare state have sort of dug in and said, you know, we can't tinker with it. We've just got to kind of hold it where it is. Um, And actually, I think what we need to do is kind of reinvent that original vision. And we need a welfare state, but one for this century. And really, that's why I wrote Radical Help, because I thought what's needed. I mean, the book is written for the general public and it tells a lot of stories, because I think what we need are stories that can help us imagine what those frameworks that we love but no longer work for us could be like in the future. Could you just say a little bit about your experiences in Moleskine? Yes. Uh, because that is just, you know, Down we could almost look out the window and say, there's Moleskine. Yes, so, I came through Moleskine yes. on the train <laughs> earlier today. So I, um, chapter two is about youth work. What could we do to support young people? And I worked in two places um, to do this experiment, which actually failed. It's the example of failure in the book. And uh, so I was invited to work in Moolscombe. And I suppose local authorities were very concerned about what was happening to young people growing up there. And that however much they might try and improve schools, for example, it wasn't enough to transform the opportunities of young people. And I think what we saw and experienced in Moolscombe is why, why a developmental framework is so important that doesn't just talk about providing opportunities. What we saw in Moleskine were young people that were utterly cut off from the wider framework and possibility of Brighton. You know, no visits to the town centre, no visits to the seaside, living... Partly that's the geography of the South Downs and difficulties of local transport and so on. So our response was, how could we connect those young people in Moleskine to different people and opportunities that were all across the local area? How could they develop bonds that could begin to elicit what they might be interested in, how they could grow as young people? And actually, we were very successful in doing that. The problem was that we enabled young people in Moleskine to make a huge array of relationships with other younger people, older people, and it was considered to be very risky by the local authority that you were having teenagers interacting with other people as they saw it unsupervised. I mean, in fact, we had checked out, you know, um, through sort of police checks and everything, but they saw it as too unsupervised and couldn't allow those kinds of connections to happen. But social research shows those connections are actually what transform and lead to different life chances. Yes, this is the central message of your book, really. You connect people up that might not otherwise get together yes. to develop capabilities. And I was, many little things in the book, I was very surprised to read, and one of them was about the youth of Mulsum not ever getting into Brighton. Yes. Uh, as a main town and how disconnected they were from that. Yes. I mean, their school is sort of, you know, a pathway from the estate. Um, there's kind of high unemployment Um, Again, for parents living on kind of universal credit or whatever, it's very difficult to kind of take expensive local bus journeys. And so what would and did make a difference for those young people was to kind of begin to say to them, what are you interested in? And through those interests, how can I connect you to others? And there's a huge amount of social research, as I say, that shows that really who we know is going to kind of make a difference to our life chances and also that as we're becoming an increasingly unequal society we know less and less diverse people. You mentioned a bit about uh, reflective practice yes which is a favorite which is a well-known topic here and uh, I was just wondering again whether what people's reactions were to that your colleagues and other people that you would go through this process of looking at what you're doing 
And again, returning to what Robert Chambers says, his famous phrase, embrace error. Yes. You know, if you think you've done something wrong, admit it. Yes. I mean, was that, was that important in your work? Yes. I mean, I say that all our work is always a prototype. And I kind of use the analogy of Formula One, that even the winning car is still a prototype that you can find error in, you can take apart and you can improve. And I think that mindset of sort of tinker and get going is really, really important to me. But it's so interesting that you say you talk about reflective practice here. You see... Nobody I know talks about reflective practice. I need to spend more time here. And one of the things that quite a lot of the book is dedicated to how hard it is to be a professional in current welfare services and why we've got huge vacancies in the NHS and so on. And how can we have well-supported professional careers? And I think reflective practice is part of that. And in everything I started, I put that in, but it's expensive. And that often gets a bit that's cut out later down the line when we're no longer around. So it's good that you're emphasising it here. I think certainly in our research, when we become involved with communities, that that, that, is, that is part of it. Well, I think that there's this commitment to do. kind of really good intellectual thinking and practice here at IDS, and that that leads, that's very unusual, and it leads to that kind of iteration and reflection. Mm-hmm. Yes, so I think, I think that's an important uh, topic. So uh, I must just say then, as you've raised that point, I thought your book was a wonderful interweaving of practice and research. So Thank you. What, what came first? I mean, did you do a, a quick literature review and said, look, this folks, this is out there, these are our ideas? Or, or did you uh, establish certain practices and thought, what's, it, what's there in the literature to back this up? So I'm continually kind of going in circles, really. I think it's like chicken and egg. And I mean, when I studied here, I'd already worked for a number of years in Africa and Latin America. So I've continually tried to weave the two together. But how the actual experiments in the book work is I write a very short manifesto and I say, you know, research shows this, practice looks like this, usually very different to research. And, you know, what would happen if we imagined like this? You know, really broad brushstrokes. And then that provides the kind of opening question to do the actual work with communities and to begin to build a solution to kind of support older people or a better way to find good work. These are the kinds of examples in the book. And then, of course, then I rethink the kind of practice and the theory. So one is building on the other the whole time. I was also very interested to read your some of your comments about scaling up and replication. Because yes. This is something I think that uh, people here get asked a lot about. That you know, you've got to scale up, you know, and uh, you've got to. It's no good having a pilot. It's got to work on a broader scale. What would you recommend? But you were you were trying. I wouldn't say you were pouring cold water on that, but you were necessarily saying, look, again, it's a it's a generally slow process, and people have to learn and listen. Our relationships get interconnected. Yes. So, is there? Have you got any ideas on the fact that okay? Participle has done this, and now we are, we've got to go, we've run out of money, but we really hope that the, uh, the interconnectedness will continue. And are there things you can, be, you can institute at the beginning of a programme to show that interconnectedness will continue? Yes. So we didn't run out of money, actually. It's just that after 10 years, I thought, I can't keep repeating these experiments. The work's out there. And actually, the third part of the book is dedicated to how to kind of do this work. So, how the, I mean... The first of a nine-month process, the first third is dedicated to finding out what actually is the problem because usually what we tackle in our work is a symptom, not a problem. And then once we've got a whole array of problems, the next part of the process is saying which of these problems will actually begin to crack open the system because I'm interested in system change. I'm interested in 
mass scale. I want many millions, billions to kind of benefit. But what I don't think will achieve that is a kind of cookie cutter rolling out industrial process. So I think what's really important is, is what is the problem you choose in the beginning and how can that begin to kind of lever open the system. And then what we have done is we've been able to kind of replicate the work by thinking, okay, what are the core components that we can put into different places where they can kind of grow organically. But I think I have wasted a lot of years actually thinking about industrial change you know everybody says can you scale up and you you get sort of you go down that path and you think yes yes I must be able to prove industrial scale and it's taken me a long time and a lot of work to see that that is not the way forward but other ways are the ways forward I mean I in my book I draw on Robin Murray who also taught me here and talks about economies of cooperation rather than economies of scale you know a lot of the cooperative movement has done kind of plants and grown in a much more organic way so they've reached what we would all call scale, but not through that industrial scaling process, and that's what interests me. And so you, you've, you, have, you do feel in those circumstances that people's capabilities have grown and they've been able to cope with this new status quo that they're, they're working in? You mean when the programmes grow bigger? When they grow bigger, and people yes. obviously, for example, coming back to Morscombe, the, yes. the, the, people, the younger people are work going into Brighton, they are interconnecting with employers. Yes. Uh, mostly, are they able to cope with that new dynamic? Yeah, so I mean, I suppose that would be a really good example of that in Morscombe we set up a kind of community which we called Loops and we, we took young people through experiences and grew relationships and then actually they drew in more young people. But then when we grew that programme in Croydon, we just took the kind of core concepts and then we started it in a way with kind of different relationships in Croydon and that's the way I grow, sort of in the sort of like a beehive, if you like, rather than kind of growing some sort of back office that so there's some bits that are core um, another example would be the aging work I do we have this kind of enterprise called circle and it has scale because it's gone to lots of different places but each one is slightly different it just keeps the core capability concepts now the question would be how many members of a circle or loops could you have before that I think probably about 2000 before you need to get the next sort of hive going if you like are you going back or planning to go back to some of these experiments to see what's there and, uh, and building on that? Because yes, yeah, so I'm very... I mean, you've invested so much time and energy into these. <laughs> so, so some of the work um, which I write about in the book has really sort of grown exponentially. So in some places we started an experiment and it's gone on to transform the whole way that a local authority works. And I'm very much in connection because, of course, that work's grown way beyond what I started. So I'm now learning from something that I, I can't claim any credit to but started with something that we did, so I'm still learning. I'm also, of course, thinking now about what's going to be the next thing that I do. And I'm very interested in the area of good work and I'm hoping to kind of grow and build on the work chapter in the book. So coming back to some of your development uh, domestic crossovers, I was very interested to, see, to read about the AKSN capabilities approach, Yes, which uh, I've certainly seen used in the development context. So uh, how was that important to you and how did you use it in your ex social experiment? Yes, so I mean I suppose that I had learnt about Sen and the approach and Martha Nussbaum's work and I think Sen was at the World Bank when I was there so there was a kind of overlap and I learned the approaches and they 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 attract me for a couple of reasons one is power that they're about power which was a question you addressed before about reconceiving kind of agency but also I think what's very important is that they work kind of on internal issues how you perceive yourself as well as external issues you know what what 
do you live in a community where there isn't any good work, for example? Like, we can't kind of just pretend that that isn't a kind of external block. So I think that dynamic way of working is really important and quite lacking in a UK context where we do either tend to ignore those external problems and particularly recently with the whole happiness agenda, have really focused on the idea that somehow people can just change their lives by focusing on their internal realities. So I think that this work is about power, it's about challenging that, it's about a developmental journey, so it's not just about saying perhaps you've got a problem with drugs, you just have to kind of get to a point where you don't. It's about how can all of us flourish in a kind of deep and meaningful way. So I found it a very powerful way of working, but it is a way of working that... um, that people are beginning to talk about now, I think, in the UK context, but is new here and I think should not be. I think it should be kind of embedded in kind of UK policy. Have you heard, uh, has this been sort of brushed off by people saying, oh, it's just about training and education, we're doing all of that. So we we do things to them, as yes. it were, so that their capabilities are grown. It's... Uh, do people understand that it has to be grown in internally? Yeah, so that's such a brilliant question because, of course, that's the other thing. You know, you can't do a capability to somebody. You have to provide support, but you can't do it. Mm. And that is kind of absolutely turning our kind of British welfare models on their head. And I think that that's a kind of ongoing... That's an ongoing sort of... I don't know, journey, struggle, you might even call it. And definitely what I find is that people do sit there saying, oh, yes, yes, we do this. And then when you ask people to visit the practice and actually see it, you know, a bit like the way we worked with Robert all those years ago, when people actually see it, then they realise, no, this is different to what I do, and that kind of moment of change comes. And people are released. They want to work in a different way. Well, let me um, move towards wrapping up by talking a bit more about capabilities. Uh, your, Your book... I mean, how far do you think this is helping the capabilities of other people, the policymakers and the decision makers? You've uh, done a lot of work publicising it and so on. Have you had any positive feedback from people who have sort of seen the light and said, yes, we must do things differently? Well, it's quite early days. I've just gone into a third edition in hardback, which is kind of amazing for a book on the welfare state. I wrote the book, as I said, I didn't write it for policymakers. I wrote it for the general public. And actually what's really surprised me is that is that particularly professionals in the current welfare state are reading it. And I think what's happening is that there's lots of people who want to do this work that it's struck a chord with. And they're like, yes, actually, this is possible. I, I can see that I'm not mad in the corner thinking this is the way to change things. I can kind of go forward and, and change these things. So I've had a lot of very positive reaction, unexpected really, from all corners of, you know, the health service, social work and so on. So I think that's very exciting. The bigger political picture, I think, you know, we're currently, as we speak, lost in a kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, Brexit deep hole. So unfortunately, it's not a time for for those debates. But hopefully, you know, just as the work goes much deeper, so the book will last. But one of the more unsettling matters I read in your book was that you did have David Cameron and Eric Pickles turn up on your door. And they were interested and they just did say, well, look, great, this has got to go nationwide. And of course, it it just then went nowhere. Well, so that would be that would be a classic example Mm -hmm. of of scale, as we were talking about before, which is that they came. They thought it was incredible. They said we must provide this work to every what they call, I wouldn't use this language, problem family, troubled family in Britain. And so they set up a a market mechanism by which local authorities were rewarded if they turned families around. And, of course, what happened was that, therefore, you know, such is the kind of nature of the system, families were... I mean, we invite families to participate. They put families in the system that were not nearly as 
uh, they didn't have the same complex issues as the families we'd originally worked with. And then they said that they kind of ticked a box and said that they'd process these families. Um, so I think there were two problems. One was that they didn't work with families with the complexity that we were working with. And the second was that kind of two now uh, longitudinal evaluations have shown that there was no impact on those families whatsoever. So for me, that would be a classic example of taking a really good idea and not growing it in the right way, but just pushing it through a kind of industrial pipeline. But places where our teams had started and were left have carried on with the work and, and they are still growing and, and getting very good, I don't want to call it results, but families' lives are changing in the programmes. One of the, another one of the things I liked about the book was you kept or you collected cost data. Yes. And so you showed that the, your approaches were, were not, as one might expect, more expensive, but less expensive. So all of the, uh, the listening and the nurturing was not an expensive business in terms of costs. No. So I think that's really important. And it also goes back to a very good question you asked earlier, which is that we're spending less it might look expensive because we're really investing, you know, in building that relationship, which takes time. But after that, change happens very fast at the kind of individual level and at the community and system level. So all the work we do costs less. Um, and of course, actually, I mean, I would say that if, you know, let's say a family like Ella's are able to then exit the system, they've been in it revolving and can exit, then that's a kind of even bigger uh, change. I mean, I don't do the work to save money, but I am pragmatic and there isn't any money or we're not allowed to use any money in the UK at the moment, so we have to kind of work within those parameters. Well, I just feel this has been absolutely fascinating, uh, uh, both reading your book and then hearing you now. And so, final question, in terms of uh, perhaps, you know, our student body for whom we feel optimism because, you know, they're the ones taking things forward, what would you tell them to do in terms of implementing some of the ideas that you've promoted here and shown work? Yes. I think what I would say is that the, wherever you come from in the world, the most important thing would be to spend some time actually living alongside others, by which I don't mean in inverted commas a field visit. I mean really getting to know the reality of others and and imbibing that because that will kind of change your perspective on the world and will empower you to do work that really really leads to meaningful change rather than the better management of problems and you know in my case that work happened here at IDS when I went to work in Harlow in Essex doing waste rounds collecting the bins alongside the binmen so you know I think it, it can be in your own country it doesn't matter where you're from I think you need to kind of turn those perspectives on their head and that's the most important part. And then you can rethink about the theory. But that very different practice outside of institutions, I think, is fundamental. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Hilary. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Thank you. Thank you again. All sounds very practical and positive, don't you think? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk or rate and review from wherever you get your podcasts.